Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. Just you and I. (laughs) Jeff, that was a goddamn episode of Twin Peaks that we just watched. That was. That was. And thank you for singing to me and waking me up here. Uh, I feel like we need to be meta about this, Darren. Like, I just woke up. That was so... That was such a hypnotic episode of Twin Peaks. It put me into such a deep sleep, and and Darren had to wake me up to do the podcast. Coming off of maybe, like, last week's episode, which was my, my least favorite episode of the year. Sorry, part in the David Lynch parlance. These are parts, not episodes. But coming off my least favorite part... This was a, a really strong rebound. Like there were some spectacular sequences, like the weirdest arm wrestling match I've ever seen on TV, maybe. <laughs> um, and there there were a lot of weird episodes, but this was just kind of like gained some momentum and snuck up on you as it went. And that last half hour, in particular, with Sarah Palmer. And Audrey, and by the way, I've gone from being completely out on Audrey, and now I think I'm just totally in on whatever the hell's going on there, to Norma and Big Ed. Big Ed's back. And then, like, who thought that I would think that, like, I would ever want to hear just you again and done in a really interesting way? And then that final shot of just Ed just sitting at his desk all alone. I was pretty riveted. I like I, I don't even know where the hour went by the time it was all over, I, and I didn't want it to end. I thought it was great. It was such an emotional roller coaster in the best way, and like saying roller coaster implies like lots of plot kineticism, and it was quite the opposite of that. Like I would almost say, Jeff, this episode made me wonder if. One way of kind of looking at this show, you've talked so much about this idea that Twin Peaks this season is reflecting on David Lynch's career, perhaps on different parts. This episode almost felt to me like some beautiful ideal version of what Twin Peaks, the missing pieces is supposed to be. That kind of, you know, (laughs) that kind of like, like, and the missing pieces for people who don't know is the kind of essentially edited together into feature length deleted scenes from Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Many of those scenes are essentially anti-plot, which is why they didn't go into Firewalk with me, which was somewhat anti-plot to begin with. But many of them are incredibly emotional and just an interesting time spent with characters. And, you know, case in point, like, I mean, you know, as a huge fan of the musical stylings of James Hurley, I was already, like, feeling quite moved during his performance. But if you told me that, like, one of the high points of this season of Twin Peaks would be a close-up on the face of Vanessa from Gossip Girl, like, laughing and crying <laughs> as she watches James perform that song. Just a lot of... a lot of, And for me, it's like, you know, Jeff, an episode like last week's, I feel like, you know, what's missing 
if there's anything missing are moments like that within the moments, you know, like moments like, you know, with Sarah Palmer and the strangeness of that scene, just the little touches that add up to the bigger touches. And there was just so much of that um, in this. Jeff, this episode, it wasn't like getting a gift. It was like getting a box of Monte Cristo number twos, a set of monogram diamond cufflinks and the keys (laughs) to our new car all at once. I thought it was more like getting the word world's greatest and most gentlest massage on my dandruff scattered shoulders um it was just it just moved me it soothed me it made me want to confess all my sins um one other big picture thought before we move forward which was this was an episode of many different tones there was conga line celebration of life there was deep confession There was confrontations with evil and despair. Through it all, I kind of got the sense that there was something on the margins of almost every scene, some creeping awareness of mortality, of the end, of maybe some kind of dark revelation that things are fleeting, if not kind of like illusion, that really like unsettling line that Charlie gave to Audrey like are like are you are, are you done playing games or do I have to end your story too felt so vaguely like meta to me maybe not even vaguely like explicitly meta you know you got the sense that Lynch is almost like knowingly acknowledging he knows what we know that we are in part 13 that this is five episodes toward the end and Twin Peaks itself is a mortal concern that is coming to an end. So it really kind of built up this dread and expectation that there is some kind of, we are cruising towards something. And we know what one of those things is, is that the end of this show, Twin Peaks will pass, but maybe some other kind of like big apocalyptic revelation that not as all as what it seems, at least for some of the characters. But but there was just, I don't know, like I got the sense of a show that was being self-aware about its own mortality and acknowledging that an end was coming. Did you get that sense too? Well, absolutely. And we'll talk about this more later when we talk about that Audrey scene. But What's happening between Audrey and Charlie, doesn't it just kind of feel like, you know, we've been kind of adrift in this symphony with a lot of different uh, instruments playing. Um, This metaphor is already falling apart, but suffice it to say, symphony, lots of instruments, and there's just suddenly this like (laughs) deep bass, maybe even some like taiko drum that is just sort of like moving in closer. It is a, Jeff, it is a taiko drum that is on some sort of carriage that is slowly entering the the auditorium just going boom 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 and you know i'm not sure what's gonna happen when the taiko drum arrives maybe it's gonna explode what a wacky orchestra this is um but yes uh, but there are instruments there are instruments in the symphony darren (laughs) to your point exactly i i do just feel like the sense of unsettledness moved throughout this episode, even as it was also really fun and really thrilling. And there was even weird stuff going on with time that I want to hit you with a little later. But um, yeah. But uh, for, first, Jeff, um, should we go to a place that we could have always guessed that a show called Twin Peaks, 
it had to go here eventually. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Western Montana. We adding adding yet another yet another state to the we're 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 almost there. We're almost getting to fifty states <laughs> covered in this season. We saw Mr. C arrive somewhere in his uh, large sort of uh, you, you know Humvee looking badass vehicle. Um, on a screen, he was being watched by Ray and a new character named Renzo and a lot of dudes with guns. This has been like between this scene and the scene with Red earlier this season, Lynch is getting a lot of weird comedy out of guys just like standing in the background holding guns. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just right from the start, Jeff, I-, I had to rewatch it again and I'm still not quite sure how they filmed this, but that like security camera a movie screen wall that they were watching him on which came up again later that was like already a super fascinating visual to start this scene off on and it, it seemed kind of it added it just immediately gave this new setting which I believe is meant to be the farm that we have heard about in the past it immediately gave it just this weird and kind of off kilter if not outright supernatural feel um, you know uh, how did you what what were your kind of thoughts about this this strange space that we arrived in full of full of strange people who simultaneously seemed like you know almost parodies of toxic gun carrying manhood but also oddly as mr c said weirdly kindergartenish in their you know in how they sort of interacted with each other well the first thing that i thought like when we saw the graphic Western Montana was exactly what you said. It's like, wow, we're, we're, we're 13 hours into this 18 hour series and we're still expanding <laughs> the scope of this thing. We've talked in the past about how these graphics on screen introducing new places almost feel like laugh lines. And so I laughed. But the other thing that immediately my mind went to was um, a Maddie Ferguson cousin to Laura Palmer she was from Missoula, Montana, which is in Western Montana. And, you know, the, the, the famous last line that Leland, possessed by Bob, said right before he killed her and smashed her face into a painting in the Palmer home was, you're going back to Missoula, Montana. And so I immediately, I, like, when, when Twin Peaks takes us to Montana, like, that's the first thing that I thought. I'm not suggesting there's any connection here between Sarah and... And the farm. But it was an episode that made a lot of vague references and implied references to Bob and Bob being sort of the specter of death, the agent of death in this world. And so I in an episode that was shaded by the specter of mortality, I thought maybe it was fitting that they were kind of like quoting Bob in some ways. Anyway. The farm, yeah, the farm, not a farm. <laughs> um, not, not what we were expecting, this giant sort of warehouse. It almost kind of felt like an implied Leonard Cohen song. You know, there is a place in Western Montana where evil people live, you know, like. <laughs> but yeah, the, the farm is just some kind of big hangout for like, like growing like really generic seedy evil people. <laughs> <laughs> and led by like a boss bad guy i also got like a vague whiff of coming off of an episode that referenced uh the inferno and into an episode that um also kind of had language that referenced heaven 
and I kind of felt like we were juxtaposing um, the the seventh heaven of Dougie in his backyard with this sort of like hell on earth in Montana that Mr. C enters into and fights with all these demons. Yeah, so that weird scene where he comes in and he's trapped and Ray is delighting and being trapped and they're watching all of this on this big screen, which is like a pretty ridiculously large screen for a first (laughs) surveillance operation. But you know what it reminded me of was the experiment. There is one other time in this season where we've seen kind of people like gather in front of a giant box and watch evil sort of materialize and get trapped inside a box and then break out and then like wreak havoc on them. And that was in the in part one when those two young lovers like watch the experiment materialize in the box that we now know was built by Mr. C. So I thought that there was some kind of maybe mirroring going on there, like watching like Renzo and his men joined by Ray on, you know, standing in front of this big box, i.e. this TV screen and watching a Mr. C arrive, the door shuts behind him, he gets out, and Ray makes a big show about now, like, yeah, I gave him the code so he can get in here, but he's now trapped in here, and he's mine, I possess him. And I thought that was maybe some interesting and deliberate mirroring. And then, of course, like like Mr. C goes up in that elevator that is pure yellow, right? And so that we have our favorite color of pain and suffering and and in Twin Peaks land. It was this like really like sinister, but like the, the imagery in the scene was just like really generic in that Lynchian generic way, but kind of with all sort of like the very specifics and references of, of time and place scrubbed out. It felt like mythic and timeless, like it's some kind of limbo, some kind of other world. But yeah, like how about that arm wrestling match? Like, what did you make of that? Well, I loved it. I loved that, like, there was this slow build to Mr. C's arrival. And, like, you know, you're just kind of in. I, I loved your comparison to this space, to this sort of hellish or at least limbo area. I was almost kind of thinking, like, you know, there's something very finchery about this whole kind of setting. Like, you know, this warehouse, this just sort of feeling of, like, you know, this is where, like, Project Mayhem goes when they're beginning their, like, tour of anarchy. And I loved, like, given that setup and all these, like, big buff looking dudes the sort of second in command starts narrating and what he says is this man's our boss there's no one can beat him at arm wrestling and it's just it's immediately kind of funny (laughs) but then to me in the classic sort of you know david lynch methodology he goes from dark and weird to hilarious and almost like farcical to then building up the arm wrestling so well there's that sort of like you know long walk as they're kind of going into the space that has been set aside specifically for arm wrestling this like this like dueling space that looks like the background of a, of a fighting stage from Street Fighter 2 like I loved that I loved all the guys being like all around them but then then like that arm wrestling and, and this is where this episode more than anything Jeff I would say this chapter this part whatever you want to call it this joint great proof of concept of the decision to 
make every scene this season just breathe and last longer than you think it should. Because the sort of slow build on this arm wrestle, which extended even to the arm wrestling itself, where just like you can just tell that Mr. C is just playing around with him. And it gets to a point where you're just kind of like, you know, why, why aren't you just ending it now? And then when it does end, it is just so shocking. Like it's just so completely smash, arm broken, bash, head broken in, you know, just so many different, you know, true action movie tones all taking place in the span of these two guys just arm wrestling. So I thought that was just remarkable. And and of course, all of that leading into a genuine bit of helpful, uh, or at least somewhat helpful understanding of what's been going on with Ray. I thought that was uh, really exciting. But what what did you make of that arm wrestling duel? And then can you explain to me everything that Ray said? Because I, I've made a few charts and graphs, and I'm, I'm still I'm still kind of confused. I'm reminded of those sort of like myths or stories of people who descend down into the underworld and make a bet, make a wager with whatever underworld deity is down there for uh, the soul of someone that he wants or she wants to bring out of the underworld. You know, this was the Twin Peaks. Well, we, we we might have seen that in a couple different ways, right? Like you know, the whole end of of the Twin Peaks original series was Agent Cooper in a way entering into the underworld to rescue uh, his lady love Annie from like the underworld demons that live down here. This is sort of like an ironic version of that, where you have this force of evil entering into a worldly underworld, a bunch of wannabe demons, kindergarten, nursery school uh, uh, demons to rescue someone that among them, but really just get some information and kill them. And that arm wrestling match, and I, you know, you saw the gag coming, I think, from a mile away, but it somehow didn't undermine it. You knew that Mr. C was completely in control of that moment. And so Lynch and his actors like turn it into this sort of like the scene that's sort of about dramatizing that idea of control in in a very kind of explicit way and how Mr. C kind of delights in kind of like uh, allowing him to win a little bit. And then he, he just like calmly like takes it back to starting position and then he lets him try again and he takes him back to starting position. He was just demonstrating his utter mastery over the room, demonstrating his utter control, delighting in emotions and feelings of different positions. You could say that it was sort of a metaphor for, for Lynch's own like filmmaking and, you know, taking his time, being in control and mastery, delighting in different kind of moments and modes of of feeling, of comfort, of discomfort, and then just finally just nailing us, you know, with like powerful, like, you know, uh, ending. Hopefully we're heading toward a powerful ending. But what I was just struck by in this moment was the experiment of Kyle McLaughlin as Mr. C. Look, I think it's already been settled that this is a very successful performance. I had my doubts at the beginning, but in this moment, and since then he's proved himself over and over again in this character, but we haven't seen him in several weeks. So seeing him again in these close-ups 
and, and seeing Kyle McLaughlin so comfortable and so in control himself of this part now and all the parts of it working together to create a very kind of sinister image, the, the mottled gray skin. We remember that this man now is little, like just a very sophisticated zombie, if you will, um, soulless now in so many ways, like bereft of some kind of soul, but also uh, I don't know, absent of of a soul, but also now absent and voided of Bob. But those black, dark eyes, so many of these scenes uh, that the sequence was just shot in like close up on the men's faces and back to an establishing shot of all of them and, and as a group. I was just struck by what kind of effect this had on us if with just a, with simple shots, like close-ups of these these men like really selling this arm wrestling and just the black eyes of Mr. C. It was really creepy and really effective. And then, yeah, and then he just like, I've had enough of this. You could just see it on his face. And then he just like puts that arm down, breaks it, and then punches yeah. Lorenzo so hard right in the nose. It like punches it through his head and pops out an eye or something. I don't know, but like, it's like, wow! Like, uh yeah, that was that was quite a button to that thing. And so all the other guys were like, like, you're the boss now. And they were just so quick to like, like back out of that room and, and, and affirm his allegiance. Uh, the underworld now has a new devil and all the sub demons are immediately afraid of him. And he, he sends them all away. Give me your cell phones. I need some cell phones, Mr. C said. Um and I'm counting on someone else out there to write me theories of what Mr. C needs. I couldn't tell if it was the cell phones were just a practical consideration or if there's some kind of like mythological totems that he needs for some reason. I, I don't quite understand it myself. Like, is this how he claims their souls is by taking their, their cell phone? Is this some weird <laughs> sort of like, I'm on that. My sense was he just needs more cell phones to like, you know, prank text Diane with or something like that. But uh, <laughs> True. So they leave. He, he gets his prize in Ray. Ray tries to sort of leave. Mr. C pulls out a gun, shoots him, clips him, puts him down. And this conversation takes place in which the first thing that Mr. C really wants to know is, who hired you to kill me? And the answer that Ray gives was Philip Jeffries. And Philip Jeffries, of course, we know, is the FBI agent that was played by David Bowie in Fire Walk With Me, and who has gone rogue from the Blue Rose Task Force for who knows how many years, pops in and out when necessary, but no one has, has seen him. And Ray says that I only talk with him on the phone. I've never met him. I've never seen him. It, it may not even be Philip Jeffries, but just it's just a guy that uses that name. And he said that if I killed you, that I could stay out of prison for good and forever. He also uh, reveals to, to Mr. C that his entire stay at that prison in South Dakota was largely arranged by Philip Jefferies working in concert with the warden there. And, and uh, it, it was all a scam to set him up for death. And that when he was released... Ray was slipped a ring, one of those green owl rings that we've seen that have factored into the, the, the whole mythology of Twin Peaks since the beginning. 
And his assignment was that when he got to a safe place with Mr. C, he was supposed to kill Mr. C, and then he was supposed to put the ring on his left ring ring, ring finger, I believe. And uh, we might ask why Ray didn't do that when he actually shot <laughs> Mr. C out there in the woods. Maybe it was just so freaky and weird he got scared and wanted to leave. Maybe the woodsman had some kind of psychological effect on him and scared him in such a way that like, he just he didn't have time and, and kind of like banished that thought from his head. But Ray did not put the ring on his finger and and so Mr. C makes Ray put that ring on his own finger. He then asks for the coordinates, which Ray has on his pocket. And Ray wisely said, I thought this was kind of a smart bit of banter. I don't know if you felt the same way, Darren. But this whole idea of like, well, I, I could give you the coordinates if you want. But like, what if I'm just lying to you? What if I've made them up? Like, what do they mean to you? You know, <laughs> but, but Ray gives him the coordinates anyway. And finally, he says... Where's Philip Jeffries now? And Ray says, well, he, he doesn't want to give up that information, but he finally does. And he says he's at a place called the Dutchman's, but it doesn't exist. And then he shoots Ray dead. Mr. C shoots Ray dead. And he goes, I know the place. Um, <laughs> and that's that. Bye-bye, Ray. Uh, have I left anything out? And do you? What did you make of that scene? You hit everything, Jeff. Um, just to to very specifically get into the words Ray used, because I have a sense that this is going to be a scene that we'll be sifting through, especially when we go back and track Ray's overall arc. He'd said something that I initially misunderstood. I could get out and stay out if I killed you first. I initially thought he was talking about prison. I now wonder if he meant I could get out of the life. I could get out of the lodge. I, I, I'm not entirely clear. I, I think that the main interesting thing about this scene is it kind of deepened but also complicated my understanding of that green ring to the extent that, and you kind of had, had referenced this, I'm no longer sure if there's one green ring or many. After Ray died, the ring disappeared and went back to the red room and we saw the one hand of Mike kind of place it back on its pedestal. But we also see seemed to see Ray himself appear on the floor of the Red Room. We may remember, I, I immediately thought of that happened to Dougie, the, the real Dougie, when he was sort of called back with the green ring on. So I'm not really clear on, like, is Ray a real person? Is Ray, like, is he like Dougie, something that was created by the Black Lodge? You know, was that the pact he had made with Jeffries? If I kill Mr. C, I can get out and stay out. You know, I'm hesitant to ever, you know, just pull the lever and say that person must be a Black Lodge entity because I don't understand what they are. But I felt like that was on the table in a very interesting way. But um, the main thing to sort of just deepen the strangeness of this scene is we see that back in the security camera home theater, all the various, I love your reference to the sort of kindergarten demonic figures who are now uh, under the charge of Mr. C. The whole gang 
is watching this showdown, and who the hell should step forward but Richard Goddamn Horn? Like <laughs> that yeah. was. I mean, I mean, throwing that into the middle of this scene was so unexpected, and you know, I, I just thought that, like, I mean, to talk about haunting and strange moments that you know to me just could only be conjured up by David Lynch Mr. C kind of leaving and flashing a look towards the camera you know we we sort of know that he has this uncanny ability this fourth wall breaking ability to look straight through a security camera in someone's eyes and having that be sort of the first moment, maybe, of like acknowledgement between these two very demonic figures who've loomed so large over this season. I mean, I thought that was remarkable. I have no sense of what the timeline is anymore, of course, but like, I just thought that all mixed together was um, so, so interesting. I mean, like, I, I don't know. Did you have any other? I've always been kind of confused about the ring, Jeff, and we've talked about like that ring kind of factors into the secret history. I, did, did you have any other angles on what we were seeing there? with regards to the kind of red room mythology of this scene? Well, a, a couple things. Yeah, that moment when Richard showed up, it felt oddly like it, it made like an intuitive sense. And it said something about this place, like, you know, Richard, this a- absolutely just unabashedly evil character that, you know, when he left Twin Peaks, when he was in need, when he was in trouble, the place that he goes to is the farm, this hangout, this 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 den of scum and, and, and iniquity, <laughs> you know, um, like either for a place to hide, a place to repair, a place to sort of like, you know, r- r- recover. It, it's a spa for bad guys. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but I don't know. The fact that he was there like made some kind of instinctual sense for me. Yeah. And then, of course, he arrives and he immediately like pushes through all the bad guys to the front of the line in front of that screen and he's mesmerized by the sight of Mr. C. And I immediately thought that inside his head, he thought, Daddy? Yeah. Because, of course, the, the, the prevailing theory being that, like, Richard Horn is the child of Audrey Horn and that he was conceived through an act of rape by Mr. C. But I, I, I don't know about that anymore. I think some of these things are up in the air. Um, and, and Mr. C seemed to sort of almost acknowledge Richard's presence, or at least just, you know, seemed to look to camera. I think he might have looked to camera anyway as he exited, as a sort of menacing gesture to all of these men, like, I see you, I'm in control. Um, but it did seem like the implication is that he was looking through that screen right into the eyes of my son. I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. see. But as, as for the ring... I don't have a ton of theories about the ring personally. I mean, it obviously seems this magic totem that whoever wears it when they die gets drawn and sucked into the red room, right? In Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, when Laura Palmer passes away, you know, she puts on that ring right before her, her the final blow to kill her. She puts on that ring, which like the implication being that it does a couple things at once. It insulates her from Bob's corruption, but the exchange maybe is that it dooms her to live in a certain place forever. And so when that final blow came and she died, she too went to the Red Room. Which made me wonder, Darren, if Ray is not necessarily dead, quote unquote, in the the Red Room. 
you know, in the same way that a part of Laura lives on in the Red Room, but Laura's physical body remains in this world and has been buried. I kind of wonder if Ray, you know, Ray's body is left behind and then an aspect of Ray now lives on in the Red Room. This implies some questions about Dougie, right? Mm -hmm. Because if Dougie also was taken into the Red Room via um, uh, the Green Ring... Is there a Dougie body that remains behind? And Jeff, uh, you know, it's also, uh, you know, I believe that that one thing we learned about Dougie is that underneath his body and underneath the uh, black smoke that was his body, he was a, a golden floating orb. So it's e- easy to That's overlook true. that. But Jeff, deep down, we're all just just golden floating orbs. Um, but uh, <laughs> That's true. So, so yeah, he's an unreal construct. So like, yeah, so so Dougie is, is, is probably not inside that house. House. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. That's what I was going to suggest. But I, I, I now take that back. But I do get the sense that after the failed attempt, because that ring did return with Dougie to the Red Room, and we saw Mike the One Arm Man put that ring back on that golden pedestal. You wonder if like uh, the game got reset, yeah, and that ring went out in the world as a part of another attempt to make a pass at Mr. C, which does make me wonder if Mike is essentially the person playing the role somehow of Philip Jeffries. One other thought before we get out of Western Montana, a huge thing that we just, well, two things that we need to talk about real quick. One thing that we didn't even acknowledge, which was what Ray told Mr. C about what Philip Jeffries wanted from Mr. C, which is that there is something inside you that they want, I believe was the line. Mm -hmm. And I took that to mean a reference to the spirit of Bob, which we saw the woodsman harvest out of Mr. C. So if if that's true, what Ray doesn't know, or maybe what the, the larger like red room demons don't know is that like Bob no longer lives uh, inside him. I want to ask you real quick what you think the Dutchman's is. Like, what is that place? But before I say that, one last theory about the farm and all of these bad guys. And to your point about what was Ray talking about when he said, I could get out forever. We joked on this podcast a couple weeks ago that maybe the world is sort of like filled with doppelgangers of people. Is it possible that the farm is a hub and a home for doppelgangers of all sorts? Doppelganger demons from the Red Room that are that are like Mr. C, just trying to make their own way in the world, or maybe some of them are, I don't know. Maybe Ray is a doppelganger, and you know, he cut some kind of deal that if he can like you know destroy the menace that is Mr. C, he could stay out forever on his own. Like just just a thought. I think it's a good thought. Again, like I'm more after the Audrey scene this episode, I'm more open than ever to questions about who is and isn't a doppelganger, who is and isn't a Black Lodge denizen. Let's shift over to Las Vegas 
Fun times in Vegas, Jeff. Things are going great there. We were in the Lucky 7 insurance agency. You had tweeted this out. Some zany, upbeat, percussive music is what started this episode. As the Mitchum brothers and the Andy sisters and Dougie, after a night of wild revelry, we seem to pick up with them right after where we left off with them, uh, having a, a fun night out at that, at that piano restaurant. Great performance in this episode by Tom Sizemore. He was sort of looking at them as they were coming in through the foyer and did like the double takiest of double takes ever before literally crawling under his desk and from under his desk calling Duncan Todd. The Mitchum brothers are very happy with the $30 million that they received from the insurance agency. Gifts all around for everybody. Sunny Jim has a new gym set. This gym set is the most wonderful gym set ever and might be my single favorite visual of the season so far just like that long shot of him like i mean it was like someone just like somehow like blended the whole las vegas strip in in a blender and then like made it into a gym set um i love that and i was texting with you about this jeff i believe the music in the background of that scene was from uh swan lake right or perhaps black swan one of those swans yeah it's tchaikovsky's dance of the swans and it's a sort of segment from a swan lake which I believe is this like mashup of two Russian fables involving an evil sorcerer that puts a spell on someone or on women turning them into swans. And then the only time that they can ever revert back to human form is that during the night under moonlight when they're near a lake and they need the help of some gallant young man to kind of wake them up and, uh, and to break the spell. I think, um, not a big ballet fan, Tchaikovsky, a weak spot. But yes, please continue. <laughs> um, things are going good for Dougie. You had sort of mentioned the references to heaven. There was a, there was a big one right here. Uh, Janie E sort of telling Dougie, love you so much. Sonny Jim is, is, is in seventh heaven. Dougie seemed to kind of munch on those words. Wait, Darren, I just want to make one observation about that backyard scene. There was an interesting effect that occurred in that scene that didn't seem natural to me, which is that as Sonny Jim Jones is running around, there is a spotlight that is like scanning the whole jungle gym and him. And, you know, that's a very particular and familiar Lynchian effect. And we've seen it before, usually in the presence of Red Room Black Lodge deities, and it famously was used, the scene that I immediately remember, the spotlight, a moving spotlight, trying to almost like capture a character in movement, was Leland Bob's murder of Maddie. Like when when she comes downstairs and finds Leland, her her uncle, ready to kill her, the lights go dim, a spotlight emerges, and it just kind of like... It traps her in this spotlight and just keeps on following her and then following Bob as he's like stalking her and killing her in this room. So kind of using that symbol, like what does the spotlight mean? Because I don't think that the jungle gym included a spotlight with it. Um, So why does Lynch like give us this effect? And I got this idea of like, if the spotlight is some kind of symbol of time or mortality or death, 
And here is this boy who's doing this sort of dance of life, if you will, going through uh, the, the jungle gym, you know, like it's almost like some kind of more spotlight of mortality is trying to capture him. And, but, but he won't be caught. Like, I'm not saying it means anything supernatural. Like really, I'm just saying it kind of lends some meaning to the, the beautiful picture that Lynch gives us in that moment of this sort of like boy just playing and exulting in his electric youth while this other kind of symbol from his vast, like, you know, catalog of symbols is trying to like capture him. I thought that was kind of poignant. Totally. Well, I mean, like, you know, Jeff, it's turning out that like a regular, nearly episodic part of this season is someone trying to kill Dougie. I mean, to think about like the spotlight of mortality just moving over him from car bombs to Ike the Spike, to the quickly approaching Hutchinses, who we saw kind of having a uh, delightful and somewhat Tarantino-esque conversation about Mormonism, all the way to uh, his own friend, Anthony, one of his one of his dearest friends, who, again... <laughs> Anthony, you know, he now is really kind of kind of our envoy into what into what I think we're coming to realize is a huge criminal enterprise being run by Duncan Todd. Anthony goes and speaks to a detective. I love God. The Fusco brothers might be my like favorite, just like random throwaway characters in this whole season. We just like checked in with them, and like you know, one Fusco's like you know, mom wants us to come to dinner on Sunday, and you know, the other one's like ah, you know, as if there's not going to be any any murders this week. And they just laughed about that. And then in came Fusco number three with the information that I've literally been waiting multiple weeks to come through. That the information that I thought would be the true, like, jaws of plot closing on this season. You know, oh, those fingerprints from Douglas Jones came back. It says that he escaped from a penitentiary a few days ago. And it says he's a former FBI agent. And they laughed about that and threw that in the trash because they thought it was a mistake. That was incredible. <laughs> I look forward to the Fusco Brothers spinoff at some point in the future. Um, but what I loved about that was there was that neat little trick of you see a moment that you think is going to be one thing and there's no plot momentum there. But right then, Anthony appears and goes and speaks to another cop. This one, a corrupt cop played, I believe, by John Savage, an actor who a lot of people remember from a lot of work that he did in the 70s. He was in the Deer Hunter. We kind of glean that Duncan Todd's operation has these two cops. Him and his partner are both kind of under his sway. He gives him some poison to use. And indeed, the next day, uh, in a showdown right outside of Simon's Cafe at the base of the business park where Lucky 7 Insurance Agency is, that's where Anthony chooses to stage the poisoning. Again, just, you know, great use of the idea of Dougie as this sort of holy fool just following his base level Twin Peaks instincts from coffee to cherry pie, and that somehow saves the day. His eyes are drawn to the cherry pie. When he's gone, Anthony pours the poison into his coffee. He returns, notices the dandruff on Anthony's back, starts kind of touching him and giving him a massage. And again, 
Boy, Sizemore just really delivering it th- th- this week. He starts like crying. He's like the uh, corrupt senator at the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Like he just makes this huge show. Like Dougie, I'm sorry. Oh God, I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt anyone. Runs into the toilet and pours out the coffee, leading somebody at the urinal to just say that bad, huh? I mean, this was just, <laughs> just so so delightful. And uh, how did you sort of feel? about um, this sort of like not quite like the wrapping up of Anthony's arc but certainly the folding of him into this notion of like the investigation that Bushnell was sort of going to do into his own company I I loved I mean this this for me was like the comedy beats of this episode just firing on all cylinders yeah several observations I just want to make about this whole sequence one is that if you follow us on Twitter, and if you read my recap maybe a couple weeks ago, a reader out there, and I don't know his name, he goes by a Twitter handle, and I and I forget, but I'll, I'll make sure to include it in, in this week's recap as well, made it a great observation of all of these synchronicities between Mr. C and Dougie Cooper, and, you know, uh, where something that... Uh, uh, that that Mr. C does is sort of mirrored in some way in something that Dougie does. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, when Bushnell puts Dougie in the limo and says, "Kind of like knock him dead," and he kind of like lightly punches, affectionate little little punch uh, to the face, and then like Dougie rubs his, his his face and kind of goes dead. That kind of mirrors a moment earlier in the season when Mr. C literally rubs the life out of someone by rubbing their face and causes them to, to, to die. Well, in this episode, like we have a, a similar juxtaposition producing different effects where touching, you know, Mr. C has an arm wrestle with Renzo and kills him, right? Um, well, Dougie has his own encounter, like a, a sit-down with an evil man who wants to kill him that results in an act of touching that has a completely different effect, that has a sort of like redemptive spiritual effect that causes like this, this human touch that has this like profound spiritual effect on Anthony where he's like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm so sorry. And he like has this sort of like, you know, born again moment where yeah, that, that great comic beat, then he'll later go up upstairs to, to like Bushnell and like confess and he'll receive judgment but also forgiveness. You've got these interesting spiritual themes that are sort of playing out in the Dougie arc. But yeah, that that was all like really, yeah, like that was super funny and, and super interesting. I was just struck by the mirroring between uh, Dougie and Mr. C in that. And it, it's possibly now happening in the same episode in real time, suggesting some kind of like synchronicity between them. I, I couldn't agree more, Jeff. And if it's all right, uh, we should move to Twin Peaks. And I, I think it's a wonderful kind of segue because to go from a business that, as you said, is run by someone truly honorable, you know, Battle and Bud, to another business that is run by someone who is truly honorable and is perhaps suffering from some of the problems that are very unique to the modern world of capitalism. Um, We actually began with the Double R Diner a little earlier, just a brief moment between Shelley and Becky that that I found um, 
really telling about what the Double R Diner represents to the show. You know, Shelly's kind of on the phone with Becky. Becky's saying Stephen never came home last night. You know, Shelly initially is kind of like, uh, you know, honey, like, I can't talk anymore. There's hungry customers kind of putting job ahead of her family and then decides I can easily combine the two. Why don't you come down here? I'm going to serve you a beautiful piece of cherry pie. You know, what a sacrament in the world of Twin Peaks. I mean, like, it almost kind of feels as if, like, you know, cherry pie is the body of Christ, of metaphorical lynch Christ, <laughs> and and coffee is the blood, you know. But you sort of begin with that. That's that's kind of like the table setting of this episode, which was actually very double R heavy. That Like, double R as this sort of sacramental place within the world of Twin Peaks. Then we get the scene that I certainly have been waiting for all season. Bobby Briggs walks into Double R, orders some dinner. Who does he see in the corner? Norma, sitting where she's been sitting most of this season. And Big Ed. Like, emotions, like, uh, you, you know, flop sweats. You know, those, like, strange symbols that only appear in, like, in, like anime were, like, circling over my head. Um, you know, I initially thought, like, oh, my God, are they together? I think it's fair to say that that was not the ultimate sense we got from this. Um, I loved them kind of inviting Bobby over for this just kind of nice, uh, you know, dinner among friends, which then gets interrupted by the arrival of, you know, again, interrupted by business and the nature of that business, I found totally fascinating. Um, You know, what was your kind of interpretation of that sort of long dialogue sequence between Norma and her business partner? Yeah, um, the, the first thing I thought was it was great to see Ed and Norma together and we remember this relationship, these two people that are in love with each other, but are also involved with other people. And those other people kind of make it difficult for them to be together. Ed has Nadine. Um, and in the original series, Norma had Hank, this ex-con who just got out of prison, but we found out is involved in all sorts of like dirty dealings in Twin Peaks. Here, we, we kind of don't know quite yet the exact nature of the relationship between Ed and a Nadine, but once again, Norma is involved with another man. And while he's not a criminal, I'm not exactly sure at the same time that Twin Peaks has a lot of admiration for him, <laughs> or at least what he represents. Um, Norma is in business with this guy. What's his name? Uh, uh, yeah, you'd think we should know this. But he's played by Pacific Northwest infotainment celebrity and former Eight is Enough actor Grant Goodeve, uh, who I grew up on on my own in my upbringing. Uh, I'm from Seattle, so I'm familiar with Grant Goodeve, and I loved Eight is Enough. So let's just call him Grant for now. So, like, uh, the, the first thing that like struck me was that oh, in the in the past 25 years, what's Norma been doing? Well, she's been franchising the Double R. And, and three of them are doing fine, but her own shop, the original Double R, is not doing as well for, for two reasons. The big one being that the pies that she's making, yes, she's like following her time-honored recipe, but she's using organic, natural, local ingredients made with love and um, so probably made a little slow perhaps and because of this like uh, her pies are more expensive to make 
um, but she's still selling them at the same price versus the other franchises, which are using her recipes, but using bad ingredients. And so they're not as good, but they're selling as much because of the brand name, because of Norma. And that's the other thing that's interesting about her business is that the other franchises use her name and trade on her name, Norma's Double R. But here in Twin Peaks, the double R has always been just the double R and it's not Norma's uh, double R. And so that's his other big advice is just that is that maybe you could use cheaper ingredients and maybe it's time to put your name on the franchise. And yeah, like on one level, it did smack that this is some sort of like, we're not really talking about diners and pies here, are we folks? <laughs> we're talking about Hollywood. We're talking about entertainment. Like Grant Goodeve Walter is representing some kind of metaphorical studio exec and looking for ways to make these franchises, uh, franchise properties more profitable by lowering costs, but following a formula but just, you know, and just trusting in the formula and trusting in a brand name, um, but kind of like underselling all of the ingredients and and not worrying about it as art. That was the other thing that he called Norma's. I know you're an artist, but let's not worry about the art so much. Let's not worry. You know, love doesn't turn a profit. And Norma the artist, Norma the patient artist, Norma who cannot do anything unless it is part of her and done right and made with love and made with time. She's like beholding this huge temptation here to sell out. And um, if you know anything about the sort of like like uh, the, the artistic life of David Lynch, uh, there was one point in his life, in his work, where he felt like he completely sold out and he views that as almost like a shameful act, which was the the, the colossal failure that was Dune. And um, he sold out his own artistic interest in that moment. And when he confronting that failure completely changed his entire creative life. You know, he set a certain new kind of rules for himself uh, that he would have final cut, that he would only do what he wanted to do and do it out of love or intense artistic interest. And that, and, and that's been the rest of his career since Dune. So yeah, there seemed to be some kind of commentary on Hollywood and movies in this scene about franchising and pie. Yeah, yeah. It's just about tweaking the formula to ensure consistency and profitability, said Walter slash Lucasfilm. Um, but speaking of uh, meetings between beloved characters, Nadine and Dr. Jacoby... I, I was almost in tears during this scene for some reason. I don't even know why. I don't even think that I like cared that much about Dr. Jacoby, but seeing him talk to Nadine, I just found really touching in an interesting way. No deep thoughts here other than I was just struck by this little sort of like micro story of these two lonely people who are only connected through like um, a radio show, a TV show, if you will, and it means so much to her, so much so that she merchandises it. She wears it on her sleeve. Um, she puts that golden shovel up in her window. And Dr. Jacoby driving through Twin Peaks one late at night for who knows what reason, getting supplies, I don't know, um, getting throat lozenges for, for, for his throat because he must be like screaming himself hoarse on his show. I don't know. But sees the golden shovel in the window, comes to a screeching halt, backs up, goes and knocks on the door. He has to know like 
who put this there? And it's Nadine. And Nadine is shocked to see him too. So these two people, like two lonely, isolated people who have this connection that they don't aren't aware of through this TV show and that they kind of meet. And just now, all of a sudden, like last week when I started getting a little tired of Dr. Amp, now it's like, like I'm now... Uh, recharged on it because it's evolving into something just a little bit more poignant. These these two people now meeting by chance a little bit uh, and knowing for him that his words had had some kind of impact and reached someone just meant the world to him. And then for her to be able to kind of say thank you for those words, uh, to, to thank him for those words and, and, and show him demonstrably how it's like affected her life. It was so sweet. Uh, like it almost like on a meta level, you could say it's the show acknowledging its fans. Um, but it was just this lovely moment of human interaction. And now all of a sudden, like I want all of the Dr. Jacoby Nadine shipper fiction. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and that led us into this at Sarah Palmer's house where we checked in with Sarah Palmer and she's sitting on her couch, sunk deep into her green, miserable couch with all these ashtrays just overflowing with what seemed to me barely smoked cigarettes and all of these vodka bottles. And she's watching what seemed to be like an old boxing match, but it was stuck on a loop. And it is something that you didn't really pay cotton to until like the fourth time that you heard it. Um, <laughs> and he's got the big guy by the ears. Oh, gentleman asks him if he's okay. And he finally goes down. Bzzz. Oh my God. It was like, yeah. When you realized that repetition was happening, it was truly haunting. And, and again, to talk about like the nature of this storytelling, that's an effect you only get if you hold that shot for, you know, four minutes basically you know with with just you know these cuts back to the television set and the repetition of those moments i found that deeply deeply haunting and you know and so what what happens while this this thing is stuck on a loop you get the sense of a woman stuck on a loop i mean she smokes she drinks she stands up she walks into her kitchen she comes back with another bottle she sets it down she sits down, she smokes, she drinks, she watches her TV set that's on a loop, she stands up, she walks out to the kitchen. Again, the fact that this TV show is stuck on a loop, you get the sense again that there is something effed up and supernatural happening in that house unless she's just watching a tape of some boxing match on a loop, right? Yeah. Um, but again, you don't need that explanation because it seemed like this really poignant, heartbreaking metaphor for what Sarah Palmer's life totally is, just stuck in a moment, stuck in a loop of her alcoholism and addiction and, and her strategies for self-medicating her tragedy and her despair. It was great. Yeah, it was so great. And to talk about this slow burn of ominousness, you know, I, I would even say it begins a little bit earlier, at least if, if you're watching with, you know, an attempt to understand what is happening when. Because in the Double R Diner, when Bobby sat down with Big Ed and Norma, he told them, I'm going to find the exact quote here. 
We found some stuff that my dad left oh, yes. today. He said today, which seems to strongly imply that the moment of his discovery of the message left by his father, which happened many episodes and several moments with Bobby ago, happened today. Now, this follows the interesting possibility that the Becky and Shelly phone call where Becky is saying, I haven't seen Steven in a couple of days. She does not mention, maybe it's because I fired a gun through the door that he was, that he'd recently vacated with his mistress, a scene that we saw earlier. So you're kind of like, all right, maybe that scene is happening out of discontinuity. Then to move here, Jeff, maybe, I mean, you know, I would never, uh, dream of guessing how much Sarah Palmer can drink in a single day, but it looked to me like all her vodka bottles were empty, and I believe we saw her shopping for more uh, the previous time that we saw her. So it's almost kind of like, are we seeing the moment of her realizing, like, oh, I'm all out, like, better go to the supermarket and then get freaked out by the turkey jerky? You know, just these interesting discontinuities and the fact that they're happening while the time on the television set is playing on a loop. Well, we, we talked about this last week, but the stuff with Diane back in Buckhorn, where we kind of noted that the, the, the chronology of that doesn't quite sync up too. It seemed that those scenes with Gordon Cole and Albert and Diane took place before and after the stuff with Bill Hastings out there at the site when he loses his head and Gordon Cole sees the black hole sun. It seems very conspicuous and deliberate now that Lynch is playing these scenes like out of chronological order. And you wonder if it's just he's just following some intuitive editing pattern, like it kind of like just doesn't matter. It's just about how to play these scenes and how to have an emotional effect. You wonder if it means something, like if the fact that like we're being presented with a story in which now with increasing irregularity, like it is not following any linear order. You wonder if this is like one more strategy in which he's creating a sense of ominousness that some kind of like what I would call psychotic break is building in the reality of Twin Peaks that is going to completely like change the way we understand what's happening in this season, at least for some characters or, 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 or one character. But yeah, that stuff with Bobby in the diner and, and most likely that stuff with Sarah, yeah, completely like takes place before the stuff that we saw a couple weeks ago with Bobby and, uh, you know, the scene between Bobby, Shelley, and Becky in the diner in which Red shows up and then the bullet goes through and then Bobby goes outside and then interacts with the people and then encounters the motorist uh, with, with the sick, maybe possessed girl in the passenger seat. That scene also took place at night, as did this one in this week's episode with Bobby and Ed and Norma. So clearly it's on two different nights. So yeah, like... It's interesting. It's like, you know, just an interesting way to tell a story, like, and it doesn't have to mean anything, but it is creating, it's contributing to the sense of ominousness of something that is happening in the reality of Twin Peaks USA. So 
we check back in with Audrey and Charlie. Boy, Jeff, if you were somebody who'd been like laying it out there with all possibilities for what that first Audrey scene meant, I have to imagine that Audrey's kind of like first big line in this second scene, I feel like I'm somewhere else, like I'm somebody else. I mean, wow, this scene. I, I just think that anybody who was not on board with the first scene with her, and you yourself had kind of said, Jeff, quite aptly, I think, that that's a scene that we'll understand more, perhaps with further clarity. This wasn't clarity, but this was certainly more dimensionality. What, what was your kind of reaction to Audrey and Charlie uh, 2.0? Well, I mean, w- what I thought was really interesting is that if, if the show is just trolling us last week, right, with this the least likely introduction of uh, reintroduction of Audrey Horn into the Twin Peaks world with this sort of like, what is happening? What has happened to Audrey? This is not the Audrey that I know. It just, she doesn't make any sense. Like, like if this is sort of how she turned out, it, she turned out so wrong at least, but clearly there must be something odd and off and wrong about her, right? Like that's the only way this, this seemingly bad scene makes any sense that reality just must not be what is presenting to be. Well, the follow-up scene completely plays to that, you know, like we were totally set up with a rope-a-dope scene last week. And now we're, we could be still be rope-a-doped. Like this is like, he's just messing with us and playing with us um, as he kind of plays some other kind of different game altogether. But yeah, like, and you made that great discovery that I tweeted out, you tweeted out, and then I retweeted last week about like uh, another proof that there was more going on in that scene. Either reality isn't what it's presenting itself to be, or Lynch is just playing with us where you know, Charlie says to, to Audrey, like, Audrey, I, I don't have a crystal ball. And if you freeze the frame as you did, and then you studied the desk, there's a crystal ball on his desk. <laughs> like uh, this, like this t- more specifically, it's a tiny empty snow globe, which immediately gets you two famous allusions. One to Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane and Rosebud and this idea of lost innocence and lost youth and mortality, which are themes that I think are pertinent to the show, but also that one of the famous endings in all of TV and one of the most controversial endings in all of TV, which is the snow globe ending of St. Elsewhere, in which it was revealed that the whole series presumably was taking place in the mind of an autistic child. <laughs> and uh, and I love that, hate it. It was certainly pretty audacious. But yeah, this whole scene where she's completely doubting her own existence, I don't know who I am, I don't feel like myself, I don't feel like I'm here. If the prevailing theory is that all of this is taking place inside Audrey's mind as she remains in some kind of comatose state, you know, that theory makes sense. If she's like a disembodied state, that makes sense. You know, she's supposed to get in a car and move out of this place and go to the roadhouse. And what was the line that, you know, like, you know, Charlie says, like, you know, like, I think that that one of the most devastating lines in the whole thing, very sinister, ominous line, like, now, are you done playing games or am I going to have to end your story too? 
like was now what did that mean like he can end her story does he just simply mean that this whole narrative that she's playing out this dawdling this anxiety like basically he's just gonna have to say enough i'm gonna like pick you up put you in the car and take you to the roadhouse like uh like is is that the story that he's ending but he also said do i have to end your this story too like what other story did he end? It was referring to last week's scene when he essentially put an end to her rambling and that engagement by just no longer talking anymore? Like, Or is it some kind of meta-acknowledgement that this is not real, that it is a story that is being piped into her head? Um, is it some meta-acknowledgement of the series itself? Like That line completely sent me down a rabbit hole of so many theories. Well, and, you know, her response to that, uh, and I was going to say, like, Sherilyn Finn, who's really being asked to do, like, a, a hundred things just in these first two scenes, and a lot of people have kind of glommed onto the fact that, like, in her first scene, she was just so aggressive and angry and then confused. And in this scene, she was, you know, so... Exhausted and desperate and sad, and ultimately, you know, broke into just a burst of, of tears. And she just seemed so tormented and, you know, desperate for someone to understand her. What she says after that line, What story is that, Charlie? Is that the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Now, didn't have time to dig into this too much. There is a Jodie Foster film from the 70s that I gather is somewhat of a cult object about a little 13-year-old girl who seems to live by herself, but there's there's something strange in her house. I, I didn't dig too deeply into this, uh, and, I, and, and currently I, I choose to believe that perhaps, you know, we will watch this and uncover some incredible keystone into what is happening with Audrey. I think even just that line is clearly meant to signal, if we don't get the sense already, there's something very off about all of this, very off about... This man who is her husband, who one second doesn't want to leave the house and is now sort of telling her, like, you have to go to the roadhouse. It almost seems as if they're kind of resetting themselves every couple of seconds. And, I mean, Jesus, on top of everything else, just a line that really reverberates, you know, as Audrey is sort of struck between, like, you know, I want to stay, I want to go, I want to do both, which one will it be? She kind of reaches her point of highest desperation and says, it's like Ghostwood here. And Ghostwood, perhaps there's kind of more references within this, Jeff, but certainly Ghostwood is the forest around Twin Peaks. And Ghostwood was the name of the development project, I believe it was to make a country club, that her father, Ben Horn, was working on, I think all the way back in... Uh, in the pilot of Twin Peaks. And indeed, Stop Ghostwood was the sort of somewhat cockamamie movement that Audrey was demonstrating for when the bank blew up in the season two finale. So, you know, her her way of saying Ghostwood, it sounded to me like perhaps there is a Ghostwood mental hospital. I'm not sure. But just a lot of yeah, totally yeah. bizarre reverberations kind of pulsating through this scene that were just so 
creepy and ma- made you sort of feel for Audrey without really knowing what she was feeling in, in a way, or at least you, you know what she's feeling, everything. And you're just wanting to understand like why exactly. <laughs> right. You got, you know, it was a portrait of a woman who was like, like a, a, some of the other characters in this show, especially Sarah Palmer stuck in a moment. Right. And she, she's, she's trapped in some psychic event, some kind of, you know, existential crisis. And that's going to, bleed into the next scene which i think is kind of interesting uh in, along the similar thematic lines but her basically saying do i want to stay do i want to go i like i want to do both like again it felt to me like speaking to our own meta awareness of this story and this point in the season like I want it to move forward to the end. You know, I want revelation. I want the drama. I want things to sort of play out, you know, but I also want it to linger. I want to stay like I don't want it to end. It's almost like she's giving voice to how we might feel uh, in the best possible scenario about loving Twin Peaks, right? Like I want to move into this end game. I, I, I want essentially the death of the series, right? Because that like, that's like, I want the final act, but, but I don't want the death of the series. I don't, I don't want to go to whatever that place represents. Cause that means it's all over. I want it to last forever. And that makes the segue into the final scene with the roadhouse equally poignant because once again, the MC is there, this MC that we only saw one other time in the show um, when he introduced the nine inch nails, the nine inch nails. Um, (laughs) But instead he introduced a musical act that is interesting in that it's iconic to Twin Peaks, but is the first musical act that doesn't technically maybe exist in our real world like it's again this sort of like weird moment of reality blur because it's james hurley this character that exists in a fictional space singing his song just you which was famous from being from early season two in which he says just this lovely moment this classic lynch twin peaks moment where he's in donna's house with donna and maddie and he sings this song and they sing on backup harmonies. And then uh, the sweet moment plays out. And then Donna catches James' eye looking at Maddie. Donna freaks out, runs out of the room. James runs out after her. Maddie is left alone. And all of a sudden she sees this vision perhaps maybe the most scariest thing ever on TV that doesn't involve violence, but just implied violence. She looks out into the the dining room and there's Bob walking into the shot and then walking straight at her in the dead middle of the frame, climbing over the couch and getting in her face. And she screams this moment that is this total foreshadowing of death. And so for me, encountering this song once again with a grown-up adult, now bald, looking kind of vaguely like like 50 hipsterish Grant Morrison, I think. <laughs> um, but now here he is, 20-some-odd years later, singing this song, still dreamy, still like cool as ever, and performing this song with 
two backup singers who are also brunettes who are supposed to obviously be like some resonant kind of figures of, of, of Donna and Maddie, which I thought was like really creepy. Yes. Like that's this whole scene was like lovely in a way, James performing this song, but it was also kind of creepy that he was sort of like living out this moment again, that it should be sort of fraught with all sorts of like, bittersweet if not dark tones for him here is a guy who is also maybe stuck in a moment if you will and maybe wants to be stuck in that moment like and again like given that it it sort of plays to our institutional memory of Twin Peaks and it harkens back to a moment that involved Bob and a foreshadowing of death this moment also too kind of seemed to be foreshadowing some kind of ominousness, but yeah, it's all playing out uh, against the backdrop to the fact where it's being almost played as a love song to this woman that we might assume that James is dating a character. I, I believe her name is Renee and she's just listening to this and she's weeping um, and crying and being moved by it. But I'm wondering if she is aware of what the totality of this song means to James. Because, like, yeah, it's a love song. And it's a love song about just you together forever in love, holding on a moment forever. But it's also this creepy act of nostalgia hearkening to a really dark moment in James' life. It's just it's an incredibly loaded scene. Well, and, and let me try to kind of, like, stitch this all together here. Here is an episode where we have one character who is told, you're an artist, what you do is great. What we need to do now is kind of package this. Take what you've been doing and make it something that can last for a long time and sell really, really well. We also have a scene where one character who has an act and perhaps doesn't quite believe his act as much as he claims he does, nevertheless inspires incredible adoration in in his fan. And now we have a scene that seems to sort of wed all of that together. We have James kind of doing the, like, Norma's double R franchise version of a song that we know was most beautiful (laughs) when it was sung in the living room to, like, two of the three women he loved and lost when he was a young man man and so the odd beautiful emptiness of this which would be enough of an interesting moment you then have the genuine emotion that it's inspiring in someone who interesting that your interpretation was that they had been dating i was wondering if they either had dated but it had come to an end and so renee thinks the song is about her or in turn if she has not dated him yet, but is being moved by this in the same way that Nadine is moved by the ramblings of Dr. Amp. It's just about, like, art and doing all of that while James is singing Just You. Ah, incredible. I thought that was a great bit of analysis. And, like, uh, uh, other than just acknowledging that this episode ended with one one of the most unexpected and... Well, just that whole moment with Ed sitting alone at Big Ed's gas farm, all alone, looking out the window, waiting for business to come, you know, eating or drinking some kind of soup, maybe out of a yellow cup. I think some readers have been pointing out that like, hey, like a yellow cup, yellow food, not a good symbol here in Twin Peaks, USA, a symbol of sort of pain and suffering, Um, but just this sort of like still life 
of loneliness. Uh, that was super poignant as well. And it seemed like a completely fitting way to end the show. It was great. It, like, I feel like I'm struggling to get at its meanings, but that's just sort of like one of the things that made it so beautiful. Like, I, I think we could be reflecting on this one for a long time. This was a good one. Perhaps the beginning of the end, perhaps one more time to just sort of delve deeply into the emotions and mysteries of the show. We want to hear from everybody out there. If you have any theories, if anyone can explain the green ring in a like straightforward or even four dimensional complicated fashion, tweet at us. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. You can email us. We love hearing from you. Twin Peaks at EW.com. And hey, if you like listening to us as, as much as we clearly like listening to ourselves, please give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. We love hearing what we're doing. If you like what we're doing, if there's stuff we can do better, let us know. And uh, Jeff, we'll be back same time next week. More Twin Peaks. My promise to the listeners is that I will wake up on time a little bit early and be a little bit more with it next week. <laughs> and my promise is that, that next week I will be asleep during the podcast so you can hear what my dreams are. <laughs> Live blog style. Bye, everybody. 